Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. So since we've been holed up in this bunker, you know what I've really taken the time to appreciate that I don't think I have in the past? What's that? Um, You're familiar with the song Electric Feel by MGMT? I am, yeah. Yeah. I've never really sat down and listened to the lyrics, you know, like really contemplated them before. Yeah. And I really like that they take the time to acknowledge that electric eels specifically live in the Amazon, that they're that you don't just like go out into the ocean, find like a moray eel and like that it produces electricity. Like it is actually very specifically this one species that lives in the Amazon. And, you know, the song really takes the time to uh, to discuss that. Huh? Yeah, I didn't know. Wait, I didn't know that. That's a th- they're only in the Amazon. Is that real? Yeah, yeah, it's uh the the electric eel uh specifically lives in the Amazon. I don't even know if it's technically an eel. Oh. What? But yeah. Well, okay, that's uh my new fun fact I'm going to be using forever now. I did <laughs> I really I really did like I honest to god thought it was like in those you know, animated movies where you can like go in the ocean and they have like mm-hmm. the electric eels going around swimming and, you know, you could generate electricity because that's how electricity works. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's my dream gone. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> electricity. Yeah. I don't know what the all along the Western Front thing is, though. I, oh. I don't know what that has to do with. um world war one germany did, did yeah. you have to read all along the western front in middle school or high school i did not but i i, I do know some about it yeah we read it and watched the movie in middle school that's that's a lot man that's pretty heavy yeah i you know if if we're talking about this you know since you know we're, we're here in this bunker right we have our loyal interns we've been finding lots of different ways to serve beans and mm-hmm. uh, and other canned vegetables. Oh, yeah, I've been making my <laughs> soups and whatnot, just like before. Oh, yeah, 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 you and your soups. Yeah. Super soups. Absolutely. Um, Zuppa. <laughs> Anyways, so this is something that I did also want to bring up. Since, you know, we're back into it, we are discussing the end of the world. We are discussing the concept of an apocalypse of Mm -hmm. civilization right right hey zan it's the end of the world as we know it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's you know (laughs) i've really come to enjoy that rem song just because i think it captures the you know what i feel like that song weirdly came true you know yeah 
I was also surprised to learn that it came out before we didn't start the fire. Really? Yeah. Huh. By Billy Joel. So it really also makes you realize that one, <laughs> we didn't start the fire is a ripoff of <laughs> it's the end of huh. the world as we know it. And also it makes you realize what a better song. It's the end of the world as we know <laughs> <Yeah>. it is. <laughs> um, Fair enough. But anyways, no, I think that song really foresaw our disconnect from each mm. other as the world ends around us. Yeah. But also like our our drive to find humor in it and just our different ways of coping and surviving in bizarre reference mm. culture. Right, right. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes. But as, aside from uh, REM, uh, <laughs> I was talking about World War One. you know, right. uh, possibly also another end of civilization oh, yeah. as we know it. And so from an early age, because I read it pretty young and I remember asking, because at this point you already knew what World War Two was about. Yeah, I remember sure. asking my social studies teacher, what was World War One about? Hmm. Because we had not learned that. We had only learned about World War II and the Vietnam War. Okay, interesting. And, you know, and like the Revolutionary War. We must have gone over the Civil War at some point. I asked him, what was World War I about? And I remember him trying to explain it to me. And my, you know, little seventh grade brain <laughs> just completely glazed over. Huh. But... <laughs> But I think after reading that novel and, you know, because it is from the German's point of view. Yeah. And I think because of that, it really solidified that there were no quote unquote good guys in mm -hmm. World War One, And that it was such a pointless, destructive endeavor on all accounts. It has really soured... It really soured all uh, fantasy media going forward that I would consume that would revolve around World War One. Mm, I don't know if you had this experience, but like, OK, I watched the movie Wonder Woman. OK, yeah. And w we've talked about this before where like I don't you know, I took a little bit of issue with them suggesting that. Basically trying to paint the um, the Germans in World War One as Nazis. Yes, and I agreed with you a lot on that. I think that's one of the that's one of the flaws. I like this movie, by the way. And I think yeah, also, yes, also, yes, also like this movie. That is one of the issues. With right. It. The other is this, and this is something that the otherwise very good uh, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Jude Law, Sherlock Holmes's oh. run into. Because mm -hmm. I do like those movies. Yeah, they're good ones too. But again, it puts World War I into this weird space of fantasy yeah. where the good guys win at the end. Right. And they avert, they basically avert something worse happening or they stop World War I from happening in the case of... Um, the the Sherlock Holmes movies and there's also you know a bit of a wink at the camera like they'll do it <laughs> they'll do it in a few years which you know they do yeah but I guess I always 
had trouble with those movies and those types of narratives um, because, you know, I get it on the one hand, like they're trying to put a fantasy setting in a global war with a European modern aesthetic, but leave out the politics of World mm. War Two. Right. With with a very clear cut bad guy, with a very clear cut villain, where World War One is just pure warmongering, profiteering, like very easy to um may build your narrative around that. My uh t to sort of get to the point is it gets no matter what the outcome is of those narratives, yeah, in a couple decades, it's about to get so much worse you know oh yeah no i like mm -hmm. that, that's that's the that's the inescapable reality i think that those movies don't fully acknowledge that you should not you shouldn't necessarily feel good at the mm -hmm. end of it no i guess no. that is my problem no, absolutely. I am as someone who's also fascinated with World War One more so than I think World War Two uh, growing up as well, because I also had a seventh grade experience that maybe it's worth talking about as well with with that and the questions. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I guess particularly in my, my public school education, I would ask a lot of questions from things I, I consumed in media or video games that were never yeah. really clear in school. Mm -hmm. And then I think now when I look back, I think it's just because the teachers didn't know either. But it's not in the curriculum, so, I mean, I guess it's not their fault per se. Like, I, I had an obsession with the uh, Byzantines at, like, 12. Okay, <laughs> oh. I was, I was, because I was playing Age of Empires, which is a computer uh, game and a strategy game where you can play as all these ancient civilizations and kind of build up and, and resources and whatnot. It's very fun, and I, I mm -hmm. love that. That's how I learned a lot of my history early on. And so I was asking about that empire in particular because we never talk about it, and we never did. So I had to wait, of course, until, like, I think really college in art history to get a better idea of who they were exactly. Um, mm. So going into World War One with this, it was a similar thing with how we talked about it in school, where we we went right to World War Two, but for World War One, we'd spend a day. Our teacher talked about cannons being used, and they made us do like a weird fight simulation of where would you position your artillery. And like, yeah, this was this always bothers me because I remember like somebody said, oh, in the back and they were like, oh, OK, yeah, put them in the back. Oh, you just killed your your uh, your front line. And I was like, do you not know how artillery works? It shoots up like what? <laughs> like, I don't know. I have weird, I guess. What do you call that? Uh, continuity issues with how people do these things. But it doesn't matter. Like, so that was it. I like I like how your, your school turned into like a military school for like one day You're planning <laughs> strategies. Yeah, literally. Well, like, I know a lot of the excuses I've gotten for that throughout like public education was because the U.S. isn't involved. So we don't cover it because we study U.S. history, not European history or not other things. But I still think even when it was covered for me, it was never nuanced enough or it was just completely mm -hmm. glossed over. You either had it in the perspective of it's about Franz Fernandad and that started the whole thing and alliances being, you know, torn or yeah. the U.S. wasn't there so it wasn't important. Those also don't sum up the issues of those things. So I think for me, I went into more media like with video games and for movies. And I think, you know, besides like the ones you mentioned with, Wonder Woman and Sherlock Holmes 
a game of shadows is the second one i don't remember something like that yeah that um, had a dumb name like that yeah it was a good movie though i, I, I do <laughs> it was, like it, was, it. Yeah, i do yeah, like yeah. it but it 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 frames itself around a point in history that's really sad and really complicated and there's no clear victory but i think that i th- i think those they're they're taking advantage of the fact that we don't know a ton about them absolutely absolutely and i think it's also a nice break from i think this sort of bad guy nazi good guy u.s soldier or european soldier narrative that's yeah. been used and used throughout like post-war war mm-hmm. post-world war ii um but i i do quite like when movies start to take this interest in world war one but not from a direct perspective or message like did you see mm-hmm. did you see uh 1917 that just like recently came out within the last like two years no, I never saw it. So one thing I, I, I liked about that, um, it really kind of paints itself through this. Um, I think the main character has to deliver a message across the lines. So the whole movie is we're following like these two characters, these two British soldiers as they're running across. I think it's around the Battle of the Somme, but I'm not entirely sure. So I don't want to be like, you know, totally adamant mm-hmm. on that. But it's, it's in France. It's around that time. And they're fighting the German army. We don't really see the the enemy in this case. And yeah. you just see the landscape. It's really, it, it, and the whole movie, I think, takes, it's like one take, the way it's edited, which is, it, it's incredible, just the cinematography for it. But I've heard that about it. It's very well shot. It's mm-hmm. very well done in this case. What I quite like about it is it, it's depicting the horrors of a war through this kind of lens where you have two characters that are just delivering a message. There's no real heroics attached, necessarily, because it doesn't solve anything. You know, they yeah. delivered one message to stop an attack that was about to happen, and I think it ends up happening anyway, or something really terrible happens, not to spoil yeah. anything. But, you know, there's something there that I feel like sums up the atrocities of the war rather well, even though, of course, it's still in a in a German-to-British conflict in that side of the war. It's mm-hmm. still something a bit more nuanced it's not as oh the good guys won and the bad guys lost there because there really isn't that in well this. yeah because the, the, they're acknowledging within that smaller story you've described mm-hmm. i think it's acknowledging how inconsequential everything feels about world war one yeah it's just you mm-hmm. can fight and fight and fight you gain a little bit of ground maybe yeah you lose some ground nobody's really moving yeah. Just watching tons of people die. You're watching just all this stuff be destroyed. Right. And you're not it's it you know, there's so many stories about the disillusionment mm-hmm. after World War One. Um the because you have to think about how the world was before that. You know, we don't really yeah. have you know, we have people alive today that most most everyone al- still alive today is you know post World War Two. You know we have right. a few people that we have some World War Two vets and survivors. We have a couple of people that you know remember life before World War Two. We do mm-hmm. not really have anyone left that remembers um, before World War One. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's been a hundred. Um, it's been a hundred plus years now. Yeah. So you know, 
out of the handful of people in the world that are over a hundred years old, you know, not even they really are going to remember this. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's going back to our discussion last time, the, the end of the Gilded Age, the end of basically, you know, kind of the end of the Romantic Age at the beginning of the 1900s, where you have all of this nationalism and everything building, all of this technological development that leads to World War One, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of this jingoism and everything. That worldview, you know, the that that world, that way of being, I feel like was in a lot of ways also destroyed. You look at all of the art that comes out of that period. You look at Dadaism. You look at all of that modern art from that era. And you begin, when you consider the nonsensical, inconsequential feelings of World War I, you understand that mm. artwork. You understand why people are creating abstract art or you know, laying the foundations for what we now think of as abstract art. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point. I, it, I it's, it, it's, it's the destruction of mm-hmm. that, that old European mentality. Yeah. Cause this is also, you know, a war that's totally, you know, fueled by propaganda and the idea of totally. heroics and the great, you know, we can even call this back to grand narrative paintings and whatnot from this uh, 19th century and then late 19th century. And then that's just yeah. gone because mm-hmm. it's not, and, and even, you know, I think I hesitate to say that even war then was as mm-hmm. pretty as they make it out to be. But now you have a machine gun. We have massive artillery cannons, Horses are still used in combat against tanks. <laughs> yeah, no, there's that there's that incredible photo of the um those guys on horseback during World War 1 and they're mm. watching a uh, like a biplane fly by. Jeez. And you're like that is the most haunting image. Like I give myself chills just yeah. thinking about it. Like watching thinking about those guys and the way that they thought that war would be fought the mm-hmm. traditions they came from for warfare and to just watch a plane fly by sitting on your horse like yeah it, it's one of those things where like it it could only be a photograph it could only mm. be a photograph that took something like that if i saw a painting that had yeah. that that is so i i would hate that painting <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't um, feel it wouldn't feel real. There wouldn't it wouldn't feel um because I think what you're what you're describing is this sort of absurdness yeah. of the cross of technologies in the passage of yeah. time. That the photo in itself or the the camera in itself is the thing that documents the eye, right? It captures what we see right in front of us. So to to demonstrate that through a photo, we can immediately understand being mm-hmm. in their position what that could possibly feel like. And a painting, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, because because every time you see a painting, you're like, well, somebody had to compose that. Exactly. Made it all up. A photograph, even though I fully acknowledge photographs, photographs were being doctored the day after they invented photography. Right. Um, (laughs) And also (laughs) and also are composed and are deliberately framed. 
Yeah. That that being said, there's a documentative quality, documentarian yes. quality that uh, you have in painting uh, yeah. versus photography that's very different. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but all, all of this considered, I think we have, I, I, I you know, the, this era also has, you know, this sort of turn of the uh, 19th into 20th century, mm. you know, sort of beginning... We do really think of the 20th century in terms of a narrative, I would say. Yeah. Right. Right, um, right. But, you know, right before this, you know, right before the Titanic sinks and World War One and the end of the Gilded Age and, you know, the sort of the, the, the feeling of like the, the hints of mm. what is to come in the bloody 20th century, you know, um, right before that you have an interesting period where I think philosophers, at least in Europe, you know, Europe is, uh, you know, going through a lot of interesting stuff in terms of art philosophy. It's also getting very rich off of its colonial exploits and everything. Yeah. Um, but because of the relative stability post, you know, Napoleon and the kind of, the, the formation of all of these states, um, these nation states that are starting to take their modern forms, you know, unifying all of these German territories into what we would think of as a Germany, unifying all of these states in the Italian peninsula into Italy, unifying the, um, unifying Spain and all this other stuff. Like, getting these territories together into their modern uh, nation states, you had a lot of people already feeling that Western civilization was going to end, was going to Mm. crumble. And you see interesting hints of it. Like nobody is predicting world war one. A lot of good people missed that one, you know? Yeah, I mean, not not that people not that there were not academics and stuff saying like, hey, this is probably not a great idea that we're such we're so we're so nationalistic and we're just developing all this technology to to kill each other. And we have all of these crazy nonsensical treaties, you know, there were people pointing that out. But I mean, in terms of like mainstream philosophy, a lot of people thought, oh, well, I guess it's the end of history. We kind of solved all the problems. We're all developing nation states. We'll all probably eventually tend towards, uh, you know, some social programs that provide for everybody. And we'll just move on from there. You know, it's the end of history. Congrats. We got there. We did it, boys. We did it. We ended history. (laughs) You know, George Bush was not the first uh, mission accomplished. Oh, God. You know, type guy. Yeah. Um. But there were two kind of things I wanted to mention. One mm-hmm. being uh, Nietzsche, the philosopher. Right. Uh, just in terms of that even someone like that was like talking about Europe will leave behind its superstitions, focus on rationalism and sort of rediscover purpose and meeting and mm-hmm. meaning outside of religion and all this other stuff, which unfortunately then gets warped into Nazi uh, philosophy. Yeah. Because it, it's worth pointing out, he was not. <laughs> he was, <laughs> he actually thought anti-Semitism specifically was, you know, really stupid, was uh, was a, a superstition holding Europe and Germany back. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is, so, so you have all these philosophers that are like talking about the end of Western civilization, whatever that may mean that right. the world isn't necessarily going to end, but something, some cultural, some cultural realization will happen. Mm -hmm. Then you have war of the worlds, which, um, you know, is published mm -hmm. by HG Wells over, uh, it's serialized over the course of 1895 to 1897. Um, and it's interesting, you know, it's one, it's, you know, it's a, uh, it's part of the, that boom in that period of, uh, what what we would now consider science fiction right, right yeah um this sort of evolution of the these speculative scientific rom romantic novels and mm. um and series of stories and you have something interesting happening with war of the worlds because it's talking about a couple of things that are you know uh, clearly aliens did not end up invading us Right. That we know of. Oh, ooh. <laughs> Very true. But H.G. Wells did posit something interesting, which was he's, he's getting the sense, in a European sense, of, uh, you know, because it's deliberately made as a response to British imperialism. Right, yes. Um, and he is sort of waxing poetic it's hard to know exactly how sympathetic he felt mm, but true. he was just sort of wondering like huh it specifically it, it, ha it happened after sort of the british um annihilation of the tasmanians in australia of the oh, uh, indigenous tasmanians wow and I know that. yeah yeah he was you know because basically it's whereas the british were you know there there were varying levels of effectiveness of their imperial intent they un in a in just brutalized australia and mm. specifically wiped out um the tasmanians jesus um when they arrived and hg wells you know he's not really thinking about imperialism the way that we would now because you know just that science and that vocabulary did not exist back then right um but he was it was not lost on him the idea that it was not a fair fight hmm. and basically he was sort of saying well what if what would how would we feel as humanity if a foreign force that we had no prior contact with arrived and without 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 much interaction at all just started annihilating us and uh and taking our land yeah geez and you know so for him you know he basically kind of um is one of the pioneers of sort of this alien invasion narrative deliberately in a response to the british you know thinking because you know that's kind of that is a, a take that is a way to mm -hmm. think about these european powers sailing into um to an island or something where you know they can have this rich culture but maybe because they haven't been 
they they haven't developed the uh, warfare technology to the same extent as the Europeans. They are just, you know, the brutalized. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And, you know, it was sort of meant as a response to the growing ideas of social Darwinism, which I do want to indicate is different from, like, Darwinian evolution. Right, I think right. It, it's important to talk about here because... yes. <laughs> Social Darwinism doesn't quite. Social Darwinism is, I think, a misread of Darwin's uh, survival of the fittest idea. Right. Where Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, most fit to that niche. Mm-hmm. That the the organism that is best suited to that to exploit that specific niche will thrive right. social darwinism was more of this thing where all of these guys at on the upper crust of society that you know are exploiting you know not only indigenous peoples abroad but are taking advantage of the labor of uh people that are in lower social strata mm. Um, they look at how wow we got to the top there must be some reason for this and now that there was and now that uh, Darwin had published Origin of the Species and Huxley was rigorously promoting it and paleontology was becoming popular. Right. All They sort of took the wrong lesson from this and said, oh, well, we must be at the top because we are the fittest and we are, we are, there was a trial of some right. kind. And we became the rulers. We arrived at the top because we struggled and we were the most successful at that struggle. Yeah, um, not great. So there's, I don't think you can look at the world, War of the Worlds as, you know, a perfect read of that time because it mm-hmm. is, you know, it is sort of clouded by some of the misconceptions about Darwinism and just you know as we would learn later in the 20th century we we would learn um the the different variants of people at the top exploiting the people below um right yes you know it, it would become more and more apparent and more and more visible yeah for sure um it's yeah. an in- it's an interesting narrative though or it's an interesting way to kind of see this sort of apocalyptic narrative that I don't think shows up before that, where it's an outside force coming in to do the same thing that they were doing to other peoples. It's, if, we, if we're just being blunt up front, it's a bit arrogant, right? Yeah. To assume that you're already at the top and now you have to kind of be knocked down. But I think we could say that the, the thought is there, right? That, yeah, they're, well, that they're, they're in the right direction. But yeah, well, I mean, okay, so in the 1800s, you know, okay, so like, have you ever seen um, the uh, the paintings, uh, Course of Empire by uh, the American painter Thomas Cole? I don't think I have, actually. He made them over 1833 to 1836. And the, the interesting thing about them, and you can't. Again, you have to remember Cole is painting this from a very Western perspective. But mm-hmm. in basically the series of paintings shows a progression of society from hunter-gatherers 
then they start organizing into communities, then they start building, they start empire building, building monumental architecture. And mm. then the paintings at the end show um, the architecture falling apart and the people neglecting uh, their, their uh, establishments and society crumbling um, and returning to nature, specifically returning to nature. And this okay. is a very, very capital R romantic idea. Yes. Um, but it is also very Western, very European idea. Right. That being said, in the 1800s, you are seeing people start to recognize with all their philosophers and with everything else, people are starting to notice the pattern of history. Right. That... Yeah there is an ebb and flow, there is a rise and fall that, you know, yes, these people are on top now, but, you know, the, what, what will happen tomorrow? You know, um, yeah. that there is, there is an inevitable collapse to all of these great societies. I mean, they were thinking in terms of, you know, the Roman Empire and stuff, because all of these people yeah. are reading you know hellenistic stuff looking at it as the classics and you know this is the peak of uh european civilization and everything mm. you know mm -hmm. they're entering the gilded age they're doing a lot of monumental architecture themselves their own mythology building but it is different yes and there's a certain I hesitate to say self-awareness because there's a lot about 1800s europe that was not self-aware yeah <laughs> yeah no i know i know what you mean i guess like but they are they are reflecting they are okay they're starting to reflect i mean even if you want to look at like the foundation of the united states because this is very specifically thomas cole coming from the american school mm, you are right. watching an empire be built in real time yeah you watched us uh separate from the british empire you know which measurably ruled the world yeah unquestionably for a period of time for sure for sure and that we had broken away and we're starting to build our own empire on the american continent people are realizing i think that you know that there there is potential in the new world for thinkers and artists but because America was founded and was trying to build something new and learn from the mistakes of the past, try to, you know, use John Locke's philosophy, try to use the different philosophers that preceded the founding fathers to build something new out of Europe, uh, a European mm -hmm. society... If you're starting all of that so reflectively, you're starting a country with an idea, and it means that you kind of are asking the question, well, where does this go? What does mm. does this eventually run its course as well? Just as we have watched the Roman Empire come and go. If we are starting a democracy, well, we're reading history books as we found right. our country and We've watched a couple other democracies come and go. Yep, that's what I was just gonna say. I mean, yeah, that's uh. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting you bring up the Roman Empire too, and like, granted, too, that is exactly what all like mm, 
monarch. What is the plural of monarch? It just all monarchies. Yeah, all monarchies throughout Europe are focused on right or this idea of the that we we sort of peaked here as a European yeah. civilization. The Roman Empire is the greatest thing to ever happen. We're not really going to talk about Alexander the Great. It's fine. We're just going to focus on this, right? <laughs> like you know, like there's so many things missing, and I don't think it's um. I don't know if it's necessarily always the structure. I think people like to think it is. And I think some of them maybe at the time thought so too, but I think there's this sort of empirical view that there's one rule and under one rule, it will be great. And if that's not happening, we're going to go to the dark ages, which mm-hmm. also is a crazy concept to begin with as well. And maybe we can dive into that later, but it's, I think that false narrative or the idea that, you need to get to greatness, but then once you're, whatever that even means, I guess, for the sake of a country, but then once you get there, there's going to be an inevitability to a downfall. And then I think you could even sprinkle in some transcendental thought and say, well, then we'll return to nature, so maybe we should do that earlier, be living in yeah. harmony and whatnot, which is a romantic idea at the time. I think it's making a comeback in a good way, but it's interesting, because I think the thing, one of the things I've always wondered about more so as a as a philosophical questioning, I think, than an answer, is uh-huh. there's kind of this idea of returning to where we came from or, like, returning to the way it should be. So, like, mm-hmm. small, whether that's a small community or a communal-type pr- village. Primitive, primitivist fantasy. Exactly, Let's... yes. Which is so bizarre to me um, as to where that can go. Because mm-hmm. I, I think about it a lot, and it's like, okay, well... This is also assuming heavily that this is just how ancient people lived, which I, yeah. I begged the question <laughs> that that was even true, that this idea of being in harmony with nature around you. There's, I think, an awareness of the resources you have near you and the ability to kind of adapt and grow within a place that mm-hmm. um, ancient people might have had. And maybe that's the point that's being kind of attached to but I think mm-hmm. now it's the escape from the technology, escape from this kind of yeah. this overbearing capitalist kind of hammer that weighs down. And I, I don't know. I think it's just um, it's an interesting thought process. So like, let's look at the idea of the the apocalypse, right? The the mainstream kind of image, or even in some of these older ones, is that there's this collapse. So there's ruins. There has to be yeah. sort of this desolation, the fire, and now I think the nuclear holocaust becomes the mower. Uh, you know, yeah. popular culture image of it. But then mm-hmm. there's still farming. There's still this sort of Western approach to uh, building and governments, or maybe there's a lack of a government and so on. But I think there's, there's that there's room to question that. Like, what, well, because you, mm-hmm. you, you, but I mean, you bring up that that's, there's two schools of thought that are like, right. what will, what will our dystopia look like? Will it be lawless and every yeah. man for himself or will it be we have no freedom because we have too many rules? Oh God, yeah, you bring up my entire life struggle right now. But it's it's such a because I've been I've been uh, I've been learning a bit about volunteerism just mm-hmm. out of curiosity, and, and a mutual friend of ours has been explaining some of it to me. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting, and it's that kind of I think uh, inner struggle. Of you either mm-hmm. have too many laws as a society, and that's what's going to lead to the downfall, or maybe that even in this in this uh, imagined post apocalypse, that's what's going to happen, or it's going to be um, 
this lawless wasteland. But then in this case of the voluntaristic thought that there's this idea of just mutual respect as the mm-hmm. driving force, which like mm-hmm. as a principle, it's it's rather interesting. And I feel like it's not necessarily always painted that way in our fictional versions of these things. But I guess like mm-hmm. I guess what my rambling and, and my monologue to your to your very <laughs> strict story, which which is great. My my uh, inner I guess existential thoughts are more or less like if this were to happen, what actually will happen? Not the romanticized version of it and not the kind of fictional version, but like, would we go back to communal living? Mm -hmm. Would it be this sort of imagined version of just absorbing into nature and, and being less populated or do you just rebuild and kind of just keep going the way it is? Cause like Mm. there was a, there's this artist, Nate Young, who is um, speaking to us during a class one time. I think like the beginning of this presentation, he proposed this question that someone gave to him, which was where or how can you use your art skills if there were like to be an apocalyptic event? Like, how does creativity mm-hmm. continue? How does it strive and where does it fit in? And mm-hmm. I'm just I'm thinking about this as you're as you're posing all these questions, too. And I, and I think it's worth questioning like yeah. is is thought a useful skill or is what is right. a useful skill or what does that i guess entail when the the structures that have been put in place to drive that no longer exist i'm i feel like i'm a bit going off topic but at the same time i think it's a worthwhile <laughs> question because i mm-hmm. think that's well i one interesting thing is i've noticed a lot of creative people and artists and people that I've just known in art schools, most all of them try to engage with some sort of higher thought, quote unquote, fine art, whatever. Right. But almost all of them also engage with some sort of more utilitarian craft, you know, whether it's, you know, baking or sewing. I mean, potters, potters are ready for the end of the world. Hi there, my name is Colby White, and I'm one of the hosts from Force Football Facts, a podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account, while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. Um, oh yeah, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Potters, potters are, are are ready. Ceramicists are fine. They'll all be fine for sure. Um, they'll find ways to patch holes in their Carhartt overalls and yes, just keep throwing with kick wheels. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, grid. But you know, I it is something I think about a lot. With every time. I took a printmaking class. There was kind mm-hmm. of this fun fantasy in my head of like, ah, if there was an EMP, I would still <laughs> know how to make books. I would still know how to make prints. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for sure. No, absolutely. You know, anybody, anybody that knows how to use a Gutenberg press, you know? Yeah, you're good to go. You're ready. But but yeah, no, you do raise an interesting point of like, what is our responsibility to each other? Because we want to imagine that we would take care of each other in these communities. And I genuinely think we would. I, yeah, I think, 
I think there is plenty of evidence to show that people are caring for each other. I'm mm -hmm. not someone that believes that humans got as far as they did by isolating themselves and believing in, mm. in, in the individual above all else. That being said, when you have these very insular communities, you know, we're also, we, we all know somebody that is, you know, either uh, a person of color or queer or both, and they came from a small town or they came from a very isolated community and they don't feel that. Right. You know, that in those small communities, you're also tend going to tend to get a lot of maybe superstitious people or people that are that get very in tune to a very specific way of living. Yeah. And don't really like anything that deviates from that. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of those communities very isolated communities popping up in the United States right now. And it's been made possible in part because of Amazon, because yeah. you can order anything you want to your house. You know, like I believe homeschooling is potentially a good thing because there's so many problems in the school system. But at the same time, like I, a standardized school system maybe would be good so that your kids don't, you know, learn that, evolution was a lie uh fed to us by the devil or they, yeah you know, gay people are going to hell you know because yeah because that's unfortunately stuff that you do run into with homeschooling you do run into that potential for people to not encounter new ideas exactly yeah you you lose um both perspective and a mm -hmm. societal kind of gaze on things where you can have m multiple perspectives on a certain subject. Yeah, and ag again, this is like, you know, most... Th this is this is a select yeah, yeah, portion yeah, sure. of homeschoolers <laughs> I am talking about and parents that, yeah. you know, that, that are... Because homeschooling kids, you know, has been shown kids learn a lot when yeah. they're not forced in to sit in a desk with a bunch of strangers and it's... But we should also be socializing our kids and learn mm -hmm. how to make relationships beyond just the people we're related to. Yeah, there could be a nice happy medium there, I feel like. Somewhere, somewhere we will find that balance. Yeah. Um, but I mean, as far as expectations go, okay, to, I'll, this, this is the last time I'll jump back to it, but to, to go back to World of the Worlds for a second, do you remember a very significant event that happened in 1938 regarding the war of the worlds um so not hg wells but orson wells the actor did a uh, dramatic reading of it on a radio broadcast right right and it's uh, allegedly caused a panic and you know people were running out in the streets freaking out because they heard it on the radio they thought that aliens really were invading us yeah and then more contemporary scholarship has suggested maybe 50 people, maybe less, thought it was real in uh -oh. all of the United States. Oh, that kind of ruins that a little bit, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm uh, Hey, I'm saying that people, people like a good story, but mm -hmm. I'm saying I don't think that we're that paranoid and crazy. 
Yeah, for sure. For I sure. think. Well, I mean, okay, with all of these societies that have eventually come to an end, like the world didn't end when the Roman Empire collapsed. European yeah. society didn't even change that much. No, not at know? all. I mean, we entered a feudal period, but if you know, if you were just a farmer or something, life probably didn't change too much for you, you know? Yeah, exactly. The, a lot of what we think of as the disgusting, backwards, gross Middle Ages was really stuff that people promoted during the Enlightenment because they really mm -hmm. wanted to separate and show how far we had come. Um, and, but, you know, okay, people in the Middle Ages were illiterate and enjoyed public execution. Yes, but, you know, we found out they actually didn't put people in Iron Maidens. Like, that was yeah. just completely made up. Oh, yeah. It's it's purposely made to look worse and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and make, yeah, to, to make, them, to make to it make, better. To make the, yeah, to make the Renaissance look good, which, you know, the Renaissance arguably was good. It got, yeah. us, got us a lot of good stuff, got us a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this, like, hmm popularized myth i guess that people in the dark ages of europe so like what after the roman empire's 500 to 600 ce into 700 you know they were they completely went backwards and reverted yeah. but yeah not like the only thing that changed is people just forgot who the romans were realistically yeah. and, and christianity became way more popular and, and the art styles changed and culture changed and people became more isolationist true yeah but like it's not, I don't think, the sort of Monty Python look. No, that yeah, it's like, for... how, how do you know he's, how do you know he's the king? Well, he ain't got shit all over him. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it's not, it's not quite that, although I, you know, well, I don't think we can claim that sanitation was that great. No, then. no, what, it wasn't um, good. You know, because the but... Romans did have plumbing, at least. Yeah, that's but, what, that's what. But with, <laughs> but with lead pipes. Well, they we can't made have everything, mistakes. Dan. We can't have everything. <laughs> they made some mistakes. You get a clean body, but you go insane. It's fine. Well, I mean... Yeah. Well, okay, so we lose aqueducts and we lose concrete. And, yeah. You know, but otherwise, yeah, people sort of enter, you know, there, there's still art happening. There's still oh, yeah. thought and philosophy happening. But, you know, the way that we look at even medieval art, mm. we look at it as backwards because it is not um, 100% representational the way that um, later European art would be. The way yeah. you get the idealized forms and then sort of the naturalistic forms that right. come later. Right, we, right. But we look at that art and we think, oh, they were all just really bad at drawing rather uh, yeah. than oh, well, you know, maybe they had an aesthetic. Maybe they mm -hmm. had, maybe this was deliberate. You know, it's like, like the ancient Egyptians knew that people didn't look like that, but that was their artistic style. And it exactly. was important to them. It was important to their spirituality. Exactly, really right. Only these specific periods in European history of, you know, basically the parts of the hellenistic era mm -hmm. and then into the renaissance enlightenment baroque periods and sort of onward european art is kind of an anomaly in that part of the world where 
it is meant to represent the experience of the eye that the mm. canvas is taking the place of your vision right right and that is that can be a very effective way to make art i'm i'm not sure. gonna lie there's so many beautiful paintings we're not going to write off, write it off what i would like to acknowledge is there are other ways to make meaningful art Mm -hmm. And that you do not have to replicate what you are seeing yeah. to, to present an idea or to present something mm. interesting. And yeah. that's just, you know, that's, that's just one way to make art. Yeah, absolutely. Just like in, in manuscript um, illustrations, yeah. it would be a, one way as well. Or in Egyptian hieroglyphics, it's one. Yeah, but, but we're getting to the problem here, which is mm -hmm. if that is your measure for art, how realistic it is. You're yeah. going to look at those illuminated manuscripts and you're going to look at them as curiosities of a time when we didn't know how to draw. Although I really mm. think they forgot what babies looked like. I'm standing by that. <laughs> they forgot what babies fair. looked like. But, you know, they knew they knew the sky was blue, but they didn't paint the sky blue because that wasn't their con that wasn't their stylistic convention. No, no, not at all. And also, also it, blue, also blue was expensive. Blue was expensive. That is that is fair, and also sort of you know that um, signifier for a you know wealth and whatnot in in the paintings. But yeah, yeah. I I think. Well, like one thing I always look at too is like in Roman art, in particular, specifically the more naturalistic looking sculpture busts. It's about identity. Yeah, you know, it's all about that. It's representing the the person there and kind of preserving them. Whereas in and I'm simplifying this like crazy, but mm -hmm. just to give a kind of basic, broad perspective. Whereas in in a more um, early Christian art style, it's more humble in a sense and more, ex mm. I guess, expressive in a way to show these things and then to kind of develop that way. It's not really about making the christ figure out to look like a literal person it's more expressive it's more illustrative too within that and i think you know what you know because i'm guilty of this too of thinking about the timeline in a sense of oh well early christian i don't really like that because i don't like the aesthetic but roman art's super nice you know what happened <laughs> and you know you start to read about it and think and there really is this sort of you know, centuries-old perspective, that's Western's per perspective, if we're being honest, that's drilled into our heads, especially in the Americas, where it's, or in the United States specifically, where time is the factor for making things great. And yeah. there's sort of a linear, there has to be a linear approach to art as well. And then, yeah. you know, when Rome fell, quote-unquote civilization fell so that way that means that the art would become bad and childish and, and <laughs> amateur which is totally just out of line if you start to think about it that way and it just beckons a lot of questions within that and so i yeah. think you know because that's like the dark ages are always looked at as the fall of civilization and mm -hmm. a, an apocalyptic event within itself but i think you know it's again it's just that fall of an empire yeah i've been i've been um well i guess i just finished watching the the mandalorian season two <laughs> if i may make an example here of this show that i'm quite obsessed with but <laughs> there's an interesting take because i look i like star wars and i hate star wars one day we'll get into it but there's something that they did in the <laughs> i think a lot of people feel that yeah there's something in the show that i that i quite like in terms of the world building which was that it's five years after the empire falls but they're still kind of there. Mm -hmm. And if yeah. we take this as like a an, an example of what we're talking about now with the Romans, you know, 
the Empire in Star Wars, you know, Death Star blows up, it's gone. They're, uh, the threat is eliminated, and now everything is great. And the show, in this case, is like, well, things don't just get fixed like that. So what happens mm-hmm. if those threats are still there? This is a big universe. There's yeah. a lot of planets. And so one by one, episode by episode, you're starting to see this sort of reclaimed and these sort of bands of Imperial um, troops and whatnot showing up in different places. And it started kind of provoking this question within myself too of, well, when the Roman Empire falls, it's not just gone. And it's like, what, 486 falls and then all of a sudden, oh, it's gone. <laughs> it's not like all the Romans evaporated. Yeah, they did, yeah, they didn't just leave. It, it's still kind of there. Well, some of them, yeah, well, you know, some of them were speaking Latin with a different accent. And then yeah. next thing you know, they're the French. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the amount of different vernacular languages happening around those um, soon-to-be countries, you know, it's just, it changes. It's not, there is no unified language. It's more personal. Which I think, mm-hmm. you know, calls back to that earlier discussion we were having about there won't really be one language. There's always going to be different variations on something. But I think mm-hmm. in terms of this kind of or quote-unquote end, right, that it doesn't just yeah. like end. the dark. We just don't have anything written down necessarily, which is why we don't know a lot. But it's becoming yeah. a more fascinating, I think, topic now. But, you know, you know there's like, like in a lot of periods of instability, I think people are very drawn to folk art. Yeah. People are very drawn to outsider art. People want to see some sort of reassurance that we will consider that we will continue to be creative mm-hmm. outside of say if an institution falls or something. And yeah, I think for that sure. I think that to, to sort of answer your question from earlier, I think that's the comfort that we find mm-hmm. in that renewed interest in folk art that maybe that we feel right now. Yeah. And I've been having this thought too a lot about especially folk songs mm. which you know, are kind of hard to come by. I, but also, I really enjoy the idea that of them as these the the song of a people, the song of a. You know, there is something nice and appealing about a folk song in that it belongs to everyone. Yeah, you Interesting. know, and in an era where if you want to cover a song, like maybe you really do genuinely feel it. You're Mm. like, more people need to hear this song. I'm going to use my platform to promote this song because this song identifies something really profound and something really specific that I want to talk about. Right. Well, someone else owns that song. Mm. So, you know, no matter how much I love, I don't know, uh whatever i i how however much i might love like a bob dylan song and i put that out there whoever owns the rights to that bob dylan song uh if it is bob dylan although i know he sold the rights to some of his songs recently yeah um that that's another you know they're waiting for some royalties you know right yeah for sure interesting it's it's a so there's something there's something appealing to people I think about that kind of um mm-hmm. about that kind of outsider art. Yeah, it's a nice I guess change from what you're kind of seeing day to day. It's always like how I explain that like you know, music 
within the last two decades completely took off and has become yeah. something I think different than you would have seen from like the seventies and whatnot, where you don't need to listen to a big label to hear someone yeah. sing, you know, there's SoundCloud, yeah. there's Spotify. It's easier to access. And maybe that can also be looked at as a downside because people get paid less and things get stolen, but it changes, yeah. I think perspectives within that. So even yeah. applying that to more, uh, craftier artworks and whatnot and more yeah. utilitarian objects and things. I think there is a nice kind of draw to that and an importance within it as well. It's, mm -hmm. I guess it's like a different field, you know, like within like, I guess this whole argument between is it fine art, is it a craft, whatever. I always, it's a, it's, it's like a somewhat complicated conversation, right? Or topic, I guess, because it's nuanced to a certain degree. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, I think there's, a broad kind of spectrum to the art world in particular, let's to focus on that, that mm -hmm. multiple things can fall into. And so I think yeah. it's a curious kind of question of, okay, well, you know, if you have these high end, like, you know, let's say modern artworks that are still revered today from like the fifties and sixties, it's like, yeah. well, where does that fit in in 10, 20 years or in this so-called yeah. post-apocalyptic scenario we've kind of yeah. conjured up, right? A Jeff Koons <laughs> is not useful if we're living in a commune. It's just not, right? Yeah. But okay. Oh, it's very funny that you mentioned <laughs> Koons because I was having a conversation the other day with oh. someone. You know those masterclass series that you see advertised <laughs> all the time on Facebook? Yes. One of them was for Kuntz teaches art. Oh, God. And no. I was just like, what the hell could he teach you to do? Because, uh... like, the snippets and everything, it's just him, like, talking about, like, you know, very vague, inspirational-sounding stuff. Right. But other than, like, marketing yourself and financial advice... Oh, God. What the hell could Kuntz teach you to do? It's not like he has any virtuosity. The no. guy doesn't know how to paint. The guy doesn't know how to sculpt. He's very open about the fact that he comes up with ideas and um, other people build them. And even if yeah. you want to say he's teaching you how to have ideas, I don't necessarily mm. know if I agree with that. Because yeah. I think you need to be actively doing something creative i don't care what it is practice writing practice mm -hmm. painting practice sculpting practice weaving i think you need to be engaged with a medium before yeah. you can begin to have a meaningful idea and i don't know what the hell jeff Kuntz could be teaching in the master class and i sure as hell i'm not paying 180 dollars to find out Oh, God, I don't even want to know what that's going to be like. It's probably miserable. He, he, he reminds me, this reminds me of something like that I would see on YouTube, right? At least Dean Kuntz might teach you how to write. Yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is that, this is like those get rich quick tips. on. Yeah. But, but they have like a million ads on their video yeah. and they're just making money from the videos and not actually yeah. the advice that they use which is the whole that's the great that's the thing i find so hilarious about those videos exactly yeah jesus man yeah i mean but i i think uh, this conversation of as interesting as it is i think we should steer towards one thing mm -hmm. in particular mm -hmm. and that is maybe our 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 contemporary idea of Armageddon is very much colored by yeah. the popularization of Christian, you yes. know, the image of revelations. 
Mm. and that specific end of the world. But one possible read of Revelations is that it already happened. That, you know, if you consider that the early Christians are a sect of Jews that have been taken over by the Romans, they're predicting the end of society and, you know, saying how sinful everybody is and that, you know, that there will be a war for good and evil and fire, brimstone, all this stuff. And like, it's just probably about the fall of the Roman Empire, because that's who their authority figure was. Interesting. Huh. I haven't heard this take on it. No. It's an it's an interesting take. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what? uh, I mean, you're a type a type of Christian. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) what uh what is uh what was your impression with revelations because i've come to understand Mm. kind of recently that catholics don't really focus on that very much and it's very much kind of a protestant specifically Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like very specifically like a very americanized uh evangelical baptist type trying to scare your kids type of thing uh, yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, being raised Catholic, I had no mention of this whatsoever. Not in school. Mm. I went to Catholic school for five years. Not really talked about. I Isn't it learned- a whole book? Is- Revelation is a whole book. It's a whole book. It's yeah. a whole book of the Bible. Yeah, it's a whole book. It's like a fantasy story. It's crazy cool. But like, if you, if you read it that way, I want to make that clear. Yeah, yeah, I- yeah. I'm reading this from, you know where, you know where I learned about Revelations from? Huh. American Dad. Oh yeah. That one episode. Oh my god. <laughs> hey, I'm Ricky the Raptor and we're yeah. going to talk about the rapture. Yeah, literally that's literally where I learned about it from. We never talked about it in school. We didn't really the Catholics don't really talk about that. It's not the point. Mm. Like I think that there's this sort of over there's a fear, right? And that's used as the sort of driving factors. You have to do the best you can be, and this is what awaits you if you don't, and this is what's coming, and there's a savior. And there's these sort of sects that cover that. And I think in Catholicism, it's a bit more um, bureaucratic, let's say. So it's more of a pay... <laughs> it's a pay-to-play. Let's say. Let's yeah, say. I mean, like, I'm yeah. summarizing yeah. rather quickly on this, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's like... It's an interesting perspective, because, you know, I think when people think the rapture, it's more of that biblical equation of, well... Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fight the Antichrist and it's going to be this awesome but horrible battle and the, yeah. the good Christians are going to be saved and those aren't are going to be left. And I don't know. I never No, I'll say I'll say this in defense of organized religion. And I know organized religion doesn't have a lot of shooters and I'm definitely not <laughs> someone. I'm definitely not their greatest advocate. Yeah, I feel that. I will say this. The idea that. You know, with with Protestantism, they take the Bible very literally. Yes. In a lot of sects. And they also, because they strip away all of the other ritual and mm-hmm. um, extraneous stuff that Catholicism, uh, Eastern Orthodox, and, you know, really Judaism have in the bible all of the other stuff they see it as unnecessary uh, uh, you know and all this commentary and stuff and the unfortunate thing is this falls really into also 
elitism as well, mm. which I'm not an advocate for, but right. there's an idea that, yes, you should read this book, but you should mm. also read some other things. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like, we're going to teach you how to interpret and read this. I'm not going to say critically. Right. <laughs> right. For the Catholic, I'm not going to give the no. Catholic Church that much credit. I am going to say they had an idea that was like, we need people that have a formalized education right. to talk about this and to build a community around um, uh, taking lots of different sources and mm -hmm. group and group thought. Right. And, you know, because in a weird way, it's a it's i'll give this to the catholic church it was a it was the only institution really the po only powerful institution during the middle ages if you think about it that did not value patrilineal descent the way almost everywhere else in europe did you didn't become a priest because your father was a priest in fact they made it almost impossible for your father to be a priest unless some you know interesting paperwork had to go through you know mm. with celibacy and all of that right, or right. maybe your father had you before he became a priest whatever um but the idea was you could ascend to something based on your education right. and that's an that's an interesting idea that i don't think we give the middle ages credit enough credit for absolutely yeah yeah or even that you could be a monk and like maybe you're you know, if we we're thinking realistically about back then, maybe you're gay and you don't want to marry someone and start a farm because mm -hmm. that's one of the three things, one of the three career paths you get to have. Yeah. Maybe you just want to enter a life where nobody is going to look the uh, look at you weird if you don't marry. Um, so mm, you true. become a nun or a monk. Huh. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, there's, you know, it's not the middle the people in the middle ages i almost said middle-aged people uh <laughs> it's not like they're completely unsophisticated or un non-nuanced right. people i so that's why i you know it, it's it, it's interesting to like you say sort of look at revelations as a fantasy story yeah for sure no it's an it, it is it is fan fiction about like it's in, like an angry angsty teenager writing a story about everyone he hates dying because literally really that's the way you can kind of look at it as like a very angry early christian just being like and then the romans get stabbed a bunch of times yeah yeah it reads that way like literally um mm. but it is interesting seeing you know kind of tying it all back to that where you know it there are kind of nuances to these to these points and conversations that it's not necessarily as black and white you know the middle yeah. ages in particular is an open-ended kind of source for that and yeah you know i think what's kind of been interesting in our talks of the sort of post-apocalyptic fiction is that this you know this kind of i think idea and wondering of the pursuit the perseverance of art and creativity and i think just the human spirit of sorts and how we've seen it time and time again and you know i think hopefully it would continue in yeah. that way yeah yeah mm -hmm. huh. well well i'm looking at our last can of tuna 
Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, hopefully we don't have to start eating these books. Uh, that, yeah, no leather yeah. bound. Thank did, you. Did you, you know, what's interesting is because this was, um, I did actually look up, because we were sort of locked in here with, uh, you know, some reading material and some other stuff, I did look sure. up some of the, uh, the most popular books uh, during... Uh, the Spanish flu. So I was I was very curious, like what were people reading? Right. Yeah. Uh, during that uh, during that period when they had to stay inside and quarantine and all of that. Hmm. Um, a lot of it is about the fall of Western civilization. The oh, okay. number four was uh, "Decline of the West" by Oswald Spengler. Oh. Uh, number one was "My Anatonia." Really? Uh, yeah. So I, you know what? Huh. I guess we were all we were all kind of obsessed with period dramas. <laughs> I guess so. Um, Rather fitting. Uh, the Tin Woodman of Oz was number six. Huh. The Land That Time Forgot by Edgar Rice Burroughs was number five. Wow. Um. Yeah, we got uh, oh uh, an H. G. Wells story. More Edgar Rice Burroughs is in that list. Huh. Yeah, that seems pretty uh, fitting. Number 15, Left-Wing Communism, An Infantile Disorder, a popular essay in Marxian oh. strategy and tactics. Mm. Eh. All right. But number 18 is Proposed Roads to Freedom, oh. colon, Socialism, Anarchism, and Syndicalism. Okay, okay. Wow, we got there, a lot of diversity going on. Beast in the on. Cave by H.P. Lovecraft. All right. People were reading a lot of different stuff. Yeah, we got some, you yeah. know, ways to pass the time. Yeah, well, I guess now that we're locked in, we'll finally have time to read all of these books. And oh my god, is the door opening? Attention all UCF faculty and attendees. The lockdown period is now lifted, and you are free to roam around the museum again. Thank you. Well, uh, well I guess we don't have to read those books now. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we could just go back. Well, yeah, I have, I have phone service again. Well, oh, thank god. It was nice It was nice knowing you, sub-sub basement. Yeah. Not yeah. gonna miss it. We'll have to we'll have to revisit this because I would really love to talk about all of the crazy uh, stuff that is in the uh, sub basements mm -hmm. of museums. There's even a book I yeah. read once called Relic. It was oh about wow! A monster that lived in the sub basement of the Museum of Natural History in Ooh, New York. Okay, I'm yeah, interested in yeah. that. Yeah, maybe we'll have to have a pop up exhibit down there soon. Yeah. Well, this was fun. I'm I glad so. we all got to enjoy that bunker together we all i think learned a little bit more about each other um yeah. but yeah let's uh let's go be isolated in our own homes now <laughs> we're all gonna stay safe hopefully no more big parties until the vaccine is widespread i hope mm -hmm. uh, all of our visitors stay safe out there absolutely if you would like to find the museum after hours we are at uncanny museum on twitter i am at xanosaurus on instagram and I am at Joe Semino Art on Instagram. And from all of us at the UCM, we hope you had a wonderful new year. And uh, we hope better things await us. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. From the Uncanny County Museum, I've been Zan Peters. And I've been Joe Semino. Ciao. Ciao.